MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 154 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, January 3rd. And it's the first show of 2024, the year of the trial. I'm calling it. I'm Allison Gill. Hey, Allison. I'm Pete Strzok. Happy New Year. I don't. I don't know where that falls on the uh, the Chinese, you know, sort of chart of the dog and monkey and cat and dragon and trial. But here we uh, are. Yeah, trial. Yeah, tiger. <laughs> <laughs> Guilty. (laughs) So much guilty. So much guilty. It's we've we've got so many things to cover. I mean, we're not even, you know, a week into January, but we've got important updates on the states trying to keep Trump off the ballot pursuant to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And there's some late in the game Trump motions to stop the Eugene Carroll trial that have failed. He just keeps losing. Um, We also have a federal judge ordering Project Veritas to hand over a tranche of documents and communications regarding the theft of Ashley Biden's diary. Remember this story? That's still under investigation. And of course, we have more congressional shenanigans. But first, we have some new patrons to thank today. Our newest patrons of 2024. Thank you so much. You make this show go. Debbie Blumenthal, I believe. Hal Roseman. Emily. Elizabeth F. Colleen. Will OA update Patreon info. <laughs> Paul Blaze, I believe, I think B L A I S, Paula Miller, Jennifer Yukamura, and Lord of Dog, which I also like that. I like that very much. Again, thank you so much. Um, we're looking forward to all of our Patreon events this year, including our April 20th meetup in DC. It's going to be fantastic. We're treating you to dinner and drinks, cocktails and mocktails for being so supportive of us and, and independent media. So thank you. Now, Pete, there, there's so much going on with multiple states trying to keep Donald Trump off the ballot pursuant to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So let's start there. And the big news of the past week was that the Maine Secretary of State has removed Donald Trump from the ballot. Well, she's, I guess, dubbed him ineligible. Uh, And that's pursuant to complaints from two Republicans and one Democrat filed in that state. Um, Andy McCabe and I had a great interview on this week's new episode of the Jack podcast with Judge J. Michael Ludig, who, who said that, you know, at first when the Colorado Supreme Court took him off the ballot, he, he thought that the Supreme Court might deny cert and not hear this case. But he said that since Maine Secretary of State and this wasn't a trial like happened in Colorado. Maine has different local election laws. And as we know, states administer their own elections. Uh, but Judge Ludig said that once Maine pulled him off the ballot, he thought that that might actually motivate the Supreme Court to weigh in on this on this issue. And, and uh, I believe that Trump will appeal the Colorado decision to SCOTUS this week. Uh, but in both cases, Pete, the default is to keep him on the ballot unless a higher court weighs in, Superior Court of Maine or the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court of Colorado already has heard this case and decided to keep him off the ballot and that he engaged in insurrection. So that would just be the Supreme Court uh, as a higher a higher court weighing in in that case. Uh, but both the default is to keep Trump on the ballot. I was wondering what you thought about. I mean, it seems like it seemed a year ago, like people like it started bubbling up like, oh, Section three of the 14th Amendment. And I read it and I was like, yeah, that's him. But it seemed kind of like a 
a pipe dream, right? To to in this political environment to keep him off the ballot, but uh, it, it seems to be rolling along. Yeah, you know, it gets really in my mind. I don't see a good answer um, coming out of any of this, and why it matters. I mean, there are a couple of weird things, right? I mean, one is that for the most part, those states that would likely vote to remove him from the ballot are states that are going to go for Joe Biden, electoral college wise. So there isn't necessarily that the net end of the day difference may not matter as much, except Maine, like Nebraska is one of the two states where they split their electoral votes. So unlike Colorado, which is a heavy Biden lean, Maine may have one of, I think they have two, um, or they have three, but one of their, their electoral votes might well go to Donald Trump. So this actually does have a, like the real world impact to Donald Trump, if he's not on the ballot, might actually matter in Maine. But the issue, and I mean, Judge Ludig is not only a extraordinarily distinguished jurist, but also a brilliant man who's, you know, I couldn't hope to match his knowledge, experience, or wisdom. I agree that, you know, part of having a different, a split in not only states deciding to keep and not keep uh, people on the ballot, but also when you now have multiple states, that is the type of thing with the Supreme Court when you have a, a difference of opinion that they might want to weigh in. But the issue is, like every state does their nominations different, designs their ballot in a, you know, and the, the authorities and who places people on the ballot and how they're removed vary, right? I mean, Colorado, there was a trial, as you pointed out. Maine, there was not. And that's by design. And so for the Supreme Court to come in and I know everybody wants the Supreme Court to kind of, you know, put on their universality hat and come out with a decision that is going to satisfy this question of when and where Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applies. You almost can't do that without a little bespoke solution state by state by state. And, you know, could they at the end of the day say, you know, it's what's called dead letter law that in fact, yeah, the Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment says what it says, but it really doesn't. It really doesn't apply anymore. You know, that would be a heck of a, a heck of a reach. You know, to sort of like, you know, invalidate an amendment to the Constitution that was ratified. I, I don't know what they're going to do, and I don't think the Supreme Court is particularly eager. I mean, I think there's some things like, you know, when it comes to the separate challenges that they're ultimately going to take up, I think, you know, immunity for Trump. I think they're going to find he absolutely is not immune, that the things he were he was doing was not on the sort of the the outer periphery of his presidential duties, which is, you know, the standard that came in Nixon v. Fitzgerald, I think. But for this, the, the 14th Amendment, I don't know what they're going to do. And I don't know what the right I, I I don't know what the right solution is. I mean, part of me wants to like, you know, have him on the ballot and be defeated, but it, constitution is what it is. I mean, you can't, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger will never be able to run for president because he wasn't born in the United States because the constitution says you have to be born in the United States. If we wanted to, you know, go elect, you know, I, I don't know who some, you know, 22 year old all-star, we couldn't do it because the constitution says you have to be what, 35, I think. So th there are things that the constitution says that arbitrarily, hey, you know, these are the things you have to either be or not be if you want to run. I don't know how you just get to carve out the 14th Amendment and say, oh, that doesn't count anymore. That was only for the Civil War. So I, I don't know. Truth be told, this this Supreme Court really likes to hate on the 14th Amendment, all the Reconstruction Amendments. Uh, now that I think about it, you know, this particular Supreme Court and the other conservative Supreme Courts throughout throughout our history. But yeah, I Judge Ludig said they should keep him off the ballot, um, but wouldn't posit or, po you know, take a gander, a, you know, wager a guess uh, at, at whether or not they would. Uh, I, I am in the camp that I don't think they will. I think that they'll find some way, some sort of technical textualist off ramp to keep him on the ballot uh, just because that's how they do. Um, but they should keep him off the ballot uh, pursuant to, to the to the amendment. And and honestly, some of those textual off ramps could be Section five saying that Congress can, you know, pa you know, pass a law to to enact this, meaning it's not self-actuating, um, which a lot of constitutional scholars disagree with. They say that it is. Um, it you know self self actuating and and it, you you don't need Congress to to make it go into effect, but then there's also the argument the textualist argument that the president's oath does not have the word support in it, 
um, which is what's in the thing. But there are clear arguments when this amendment was being written that the president and the vice president were included. Um, but we'll see. <laughs> they Yeah, it, I, I lose my mind every time people make that, that. It doesn't say support. It's like, if anything, if you compare the <laughs> oaths of office, and there's like variations from like what you take as a, when you're, you're commissioned as an army officer or an enlisted versus what you take as a government employee versus what you take as a senator or congressman versus what you take as a, as a president. The oath of office of the presidency is a higher standard, is a higher bar. And so all these knuckleheads saying, there, it doesn't say support. No, it actually says more. It, you know, it, it, it is a higher standard. It is a higher uh, uh, weighty oath that you were making. So to somehow try and argue that, oh, this is lesser and that the president isn't an officer of the United States is absurd to me. Mm-hmm. And you those know, were the again, arguments whether, that the secretary of state know. made and that the, the plaintiffs in Colorado made. They were like, are you are you saying that, uh, you know, you can have an insurrectionist that can't run for anything except president? That seems really dumb. Yeah. Now, whether Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas decide, you know, the, 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 with the same vigor that they have uh, shown for states' rights, for instance, in, in North Carolina and their ability to, you know, do do what they want with their electoral maps, uh, you know, I I'm, I'm, would not at all be surprised if this very states' rights forward um, get the federal government out of telling the states what to do. Conservative majority of the Supreme Court suddenly finds God. Uh, you know, figuratively, they've already found him in a bunch of other ways. They claim, you know, a conservative, crazy, largely Catholic God in their experience. But nevertheless, I, you know, uh, to have this just longstanding pattern of argument about the limiting of the federal government uh, in favor of the states to suddenly just absurdly reverse themselves in this case would not surprise me at all. Yeah, and I think they'll chicken out on the whether or not he engaged in an insurrection question too. I think they'll they'll not touch that with a ten foot pole, even though, in even like the Colorado Supreme Court split decision, all seven uh, justices did agree that he engaged in an insurrection. The only thing that was keeping the dissenters from removing him from the ballot was local Colorado procedure had nothing to do with anything that the Supreme Court can weigh in on, and the Supreme Court has tons of precedent. Uh, Sandlin, Morvey Harper. Um, I mean, I could name them all day. Case citations from the Supreme Court, including Kavanaugh, Scalia, Alito, that have all been quoted in in a lot of these uh, filings and cases to keep them off the ballot. Who say no? Sorry, um, the states determine and administer their elections, not us, not the feds, not the executive. And I think that that will also that argument will play into the immunity claims as well. But we'll you know, we'll see what happens because the, you know, January 4th, I think, is the drop dead date to get the Colorado primary ballot uh, situated and January 20th for Maine. And of course, the Supreme Court could say, hey, the primary is a private party thing. Um, So this isn't even ripe yet. Come back to us when you want to keep them off the general election ballot, or they might decide not to hear any of these at all. Uh, But I I think they'll hear it and I think they'll keep them on the ballot and I think they'll find some tricky, weird pretzel kind of way to do it. Yeah, I agree with you. And I mean, look, just like this, the, you know, the notion of whether or not somebody is convicted of insurrection, the fact uh, Jefferson Davis the leader of the the Confederacy was never convicted of insurrection. A large number of senior Confederate military officers were never convicted of insurrection. It was clear when the 14th Amendment was passed that there was not a requirement to be convicted of insurrection because the fact of the matter is any number of people who you know, were not running, did not run, would have been disqualified from running simply because of their participation in the Confederacy. There isn't there's some trigger that, oh, there has to be a conviction of something. No, there doesn't. Look at look at the time when this was passed. I it, it, there's there's no and again if you want to go to the originalist perspective that Clarence Thomas and you know the disciple of Antonin Scalia says let's look at what was meant at the time this was written. Great, let's do that. Show me how many in, insurrection convictions followed the Civil War to support your idea that there has to be some Article Three and or impeachment conviction to support triggering the Fourteenth Amendment. Doesn't exist. Yeah, and I don't know that they'll go down that road necessarily, but it, 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 to, I think they'll go down the uh, textualist kind of uh, road or somehow that the president isn't covered 
by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment or it's not self-actuating and it needs to be passed by Congress. But I think in the Times and everything that I've read and in the Federalist Papers and in the arguments in, in the Senate when they were writing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, I think it's just as clear that the president is covered in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment as it is that he, you know, has to engage in insurrection or any, you know, any any other uh, kind of, I guess, requirement to to fit under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It's obvious to me, I think if you read the 14th Amendment, my my thought is if this isn't for Donald Trump, who is it for? And they had discussions in the Senate way back in the day about, well, is this just for Confederates or is it for demagogue weirdos going forward? And they're like, well, they pulled conf- the term Confederates out of it because they wanted it to apply for all time. And and so it's going to be it's going to be a hypocritical, shitty decision if they decide to keep them on the ballot because it's not going to fit with the context uh, and the text of the of the Constitution. But we'll see what ends up happening. But also, uh, Pete, talk a little bit about uh, I think NBC came out with some reporting uh, about the FBI now investigating many of the threats that have been leveled against the Colorado Supreme Court justices. Yeah, and so it was interesting. They did report that, and they had some level of detail, including a statement from a FBI spokeswoman, uh, Vicki Magoya, who's a spokesperson for the FBI's Denver field office, who said, in quoting her, the FBI is aware of the situation, and this is uh, threats against Colorado Supreme Court justices, uh, and working with local law enforcement. Uh, we will vigorously pursue investigations of any threat or use of violence committed by someone who uses extremist views to justify their actions, regardless of motivation. And so that that came out of the FBI, and that was out of uh, information that some of the Supreme Court justices had received threats after they had deemed Trump ineligible. And interestingly, also, uh, in addition to the FBI making a statement, the Colorado State Patrol who is the entity, the law enforcement entity providing protection for the justices in the courthouse and other state buildings, acknowledged what the FBI was doing and saying in its own statement that, quote, we that it will assist with those investigations as necessary. But they didn't comment on any additional security measures prompted by the threats, which, you know, makes sense because you don't want to telegraph if you're enhancing coverage or providing, you know, around the clock, you know, police presence at their homes or, you know, protection details. You don't want to advertise what you're doing. But it just goes to show, I mean, it, it and it was interesting because I, I made this point um, on MSNBC and it triggered magination on, you know, online. And it was interesting. And the point was, one, you don't see these threats. So, and you also saw threats in Maine, right? When, when right. they decided to leave them off the ballot, you had the uh, Secretary of State, I think, getting doxxed. And what you don't see are states like Michigan who said, no, we'll leave you on the ballot. And Trump doesn't say anything. I mean, I think he actually might have said, oh, Michigan made the right decision. Surprisingly enough, you don't see any threats to those justices. So it's not the case that, oh, we're in a time where just everybody's making a threat of violence. No, we're in a time. (laughs) Specific. We're specific to one side. We're supporters of Donald Trump when Donald Trump makes nasty statements about Maine or about Colorado that presumably his followers go out and make threats of violence against those people. It isn't happening on both sides. And I'll be damned if that didn't trigger the hell out of magination saying, you know, Pete said that only Trump supporters are violent. And like, first of all, that's not what I said. But what I did say is there is a propensity towards violence following the statements of Donald Trump that does not exist on the other side of the aisle, in part because certainly President Biden isn't making statements encouraging violence, but two, it, 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 there, the, look at the data. Mm-hmm. Threats in Maine after Trump says things. Threats in Colorado after Trump says things. Threats against Judge Chutkin after Trump says things. It, no threats and, against Eileen Cannon. No threats against her. No threats against Michigan. No threats against any other state. That is providing what Donald Trump deems to be a positive result. So you tell me, let's just look at the data and line it up on a balance sheet. And it's all on one side. And what bothers me is, in some ways, the government, DOJ and the FBI are trying to be so politically correct. They're not saying this threat and these threats are coming from and as a result of the statements of former President Trump. They're saying these like, well, we're against violence. 
committed by someone who uses extremist views, regardless of their motivation. Well, it just so happens that every single person doing this happens to be a supporter of Trump. And again, well, Jack you Smith has, though. I, I, we, we do have to say that because he has in his motions and briefings and uh, pleadings with the courts uh, in any number of, of issues before multiple courts, um, he has pointed out and shown evidence that it is the defendant, the criminal defendant, who knowingly says things, causes violence, and then doubles down. And that he's trying to submit as evidence for his intent as well. So um, while while the you know main justice isn't uh, you know main justice is like well whoever threatens no matter who you are we don't like that uh, you know uh, Jack Smith in his you know criminal pleadings uh, are he's he's a little bit more specific um, and Michigan I just wanted to note before we before I take a quick break um, they didn't rule every the media was like Trump big win in Michigan oh everybody win mm-hmm. Republican win in Michigan. It's not, though. Michigan right. said, hey, in our state, because states administer elections, the the GOP primary is a private party thing. And we don't have say as a state over who goes on the ballot there. We only do that in the general election. So your cl- your claims here, your petition is not ripe yet. Come back to us when we're talking about the general election ballot which is uh, maybe something that the Supreme Court might do as well. I don't know. I think they want to decide this pretty quickly. Um, uh, But uh, that, I just want to put that out there, that it's not a huge win for Trump. It's just the prime, they, in that particular state, unlike Maine, the primary ballot is, is, is kind of, I guess, I'm and I'm, you know, I'm paraphrasing here. I'm, it's not really part of the main, main event. Uh, it's a party thing. And so we don't have, we can't keep our hands out of that. But come back, come back and see us later. So we'll see what ends up happening. All right. We got a lot more to get to, but we need to take a quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We have some more new patrons to thank. Thank you for opting to support us in 2024. There's going to be a lot to cover this year, and you literally make this possible. We could not do it without your support. So thank you. Thank you for starting the year out with your support. And in particular, I want to thank Joan Boehm, or Bomi, Math Dad CLT, Ariadne Jewell, Brenda Steinberg, Terry Hunt, Walks with Groot, Jill Berman, Diane J, Allie Quinn, and Milkshake Jake, the Ethical Dog. Thank all of you so much. <laughs> uh, thank you as we head into, I think, what is going to be one of the most consequential years in our nation's history. There's a tremendous amount that is going to happen in the next 12 months. And again, th you make this all possible. So, so thank you. Can we have just some, like after this year, can we just have regular, can we go back to yeah. precedented? things can we just go back to very boring yes. politics after yes. this that'd be great and that, right and, and try and get you all to subscribe to a podcast called precedented <laughs> <laughs> easy the stories for slow normal times, times. Yeah. normal news in normal times it's like the dow was up 2.4 points today just it's like oh back to like weather and traffic where it's like that's the yes there's a big snarl in the beltway yeah, at so the tone the time will be <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then luxury, we're going to go off air at at, at midnight <laughs> after we play the national anthem, we're going to put up the little color bars and not go back on air until 6 a.m. because it's that <laughs> slow. All nice. right. So let's go to New York because we've got some updates in the E. Jean Carroll case. Now, the trial is set to begin on January 16th. It was scheduled for the 15th, but the court moved it back one day because of the Martin Luther King holiday. As you know, this is known as Carroll 1. We already had the defamation trial for Carroll 2 which the jury found that Trump sexually assaulted E. Jean Carroll, that he defamed her in comments he made after he left the presidency. Now, this trial is for comments that he made while he was president. And as we discussed last week, Donald's been trying to strike one of E. Jean Carroll's expert witnesses, Dr. Ashley Humphreys. She was also an expert, uh, an expert witness in the Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss defamation case against Rudy Giuliani, in which the jury awarded the two election workers nearly $150 million, with an M, $150 million. Now, the first C.J. Carroll case yielded a $5 million award from the jury, but keep in mind those were obscure comments that Trump made after he left office. This expert, uh, Dr. Humphreys is going to explain the reach of the defamatory comments. And of course, Trump's reach was much, much larger when he was the president. So Trump, of course, filed a motion to strike this expert witness uh, the day after the jury awarded Freeman and Moss 30 times, <laughs> 30 times what Carroll was awarded in the first trial. Now, here's what's new. Judge Kaplan has denied Trump's motion to strike Dr. Ashley Humphreys. First, the deadline for filing motions in limine for the case was in February 16th of last year. You're 10 months too late. Now, even if it were on time, the defendant's arguments against her methodology is insufficient. Trump also asked for permission to file a new report from a new expert. But this is the same expert that was denied the first time around in the first E. Jean Carroll trial because of the unreliability of his methodology. So that motion is also denied. So Trump uh, 0 for 3, um, and the motion to strike was denied, and we can expect to hear. And again, I, I mentioned this before, the, the day I went to trial to watch uh, Rudy's trial, Dr. Humphreys was the all morning uh, on the stand. Uh, very impressive, very precise, uh, used a very scientifically rigorous process backed by market data and walked the jury through statement by statement that was defamatory, the reach of those statements, how she analyzed the impact of those statements on, uh, you know, in this case, Shane Wilson, Ruby Freeman's reputation. Presumably she'll be doing the same thing on E. Jean Carroll's reputation, but absolutely the reach of what Trump said while he was president and had the bully pulpit of the presidency is far, far greater. So I would not be surprised at all to see way higher um, than $5 million in, of damages coming coming his way. Yep. And and keep in mind, this is, I believe this is New York, whereas the, the Ruby Freeman Shea Moss was D.C. Uh, and I'm not familiar with the local rules about whether there are caps on these kinds of damages. Um, so I, you know, but I would assume that Trump as president's comments got more legs than Rudy Giuliani's comments on his stupid podcast. Um, so if this were, if, if you know, apples were apples, I, I would say we could be, oh, she would be awarded more than what Rudy Giuliani uh, received. But this is a different uh, jurisdiction. We'll see what ends up happening. Uh, and I also want to bring up something. 
E. Jean Carroll won this trial starting on January 16th almost didn't happen because she filed this lawsuit while he was still president, while Bill Barr was still the attorney general. And Bill Barr made a determination that that kind of defamation was part of Donald Trump's job. Now, that appeal went up and the Second Circuit uh, came back down with a decision. And then Merrick Garland, he decided that these comments were not within the outer perimeter of his duties as president. And therefore, the DOJ would not represent Donald Trump in this case. And when the DOJ represents somebody like Donald Trump, that's pretty much the end of the case, right? And so, you know, I just want to kind of go over the importance of, of, of an attorney general, because this would not have gone, this whole case, Eugene one would not have gone forward under Barr, much like how Barr determined that Donald Trump didn't obstruct justice. And a lot of people are like, why didn't we see any obstruction of justice charges in the Mueller probe? And it's, you know, Barr came in and, and shut that down and, and wrote a whole OLC memo about, which was wrong on the law that, you know, you can't obstruct justice unless there's some underlying crime. And since he wasn't charged with conspiracy with the Russian government, uh, that, that there's no underlying crime and therefore he can't obstruct justice. And he also, he is justice. It was just the dumbest thing. Um, but, uh, you know, I want to point out the importance there of, of who the attorney general is. And also, it, it is of note that Merrick Garland wasn't going to overturn that decision until the Second Circuit got involved and gave him kind of an off ramp to do it. Because that's one of the, I think one of the things, you know, I always defend Merrick Garland, but he is timid in that he will not just come in and overturn the former AG. He needs an off ramp or a method to do that. And he got that in this case from the Second Circuit and their decision that the DOJ should not represent Trump in this case. But anyway, you said that he was 0-3. Well, he's about to go. Well, he just did, actually. He's 0-4 now because Trump filed a motion with the Second Circuit Court of Appeals to pause the E. Jean Carroll trial pending the outcome of his immunity appeal there. And the three-judge panel denied that motion as well. So he applied for a stay. Uh, they, they said no. Uh, we're going to, we'll hear your appeal, but we're not stopping this trial. It's just, none of this is like it, what he is doing and did, in my opinion, is wrong and illegal. And we'll soon find that out through trials. But all of this, again, keep in mind, don't, you know, we sit there and, you know, and I'm guilty of this too, saying, oh, he lost. It's, it's the win loss isn't the issue here at the end of the day. The issue is one, to slow things down. And then two, to try and generate, you know, grist for his fundraising mill, things where he can paint himself as the victim. So I'm, they're only, they're not coming after you because I'm the only one standing in their way. That That is the entirety of this based on a, you know, a career uh, of developing skills as a, a vexatious litigant. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I remind myself because I'm guilty of thinking, man, this guy's legal, you know, record is terrible. But the, the point isn't the record. The point is to just gum up the works, to slow things down, to create an image that is helpful to him. Yeah. And, and but, you know, that's where this is good news. The, the, the stay to gum it up and slow it down and stop the trial from, ha from happening January 16th what has been denied. Three judges, uh, Cabranes, who is a Clinton appointee, Chin, who is an Obama appointee, and Khan, who is a Biden appointee, uh, will let you know if he asks the Supreme Court for an emergency stay pending appeal or if he tries to go on bonk. But as of now, this trial kicks off January 16th. It's a damages-only trial, much like E. Jean 2. And I imagine, like you said, the award will far exceed the $5 million in his first trial because his reach was so much bigger when he was president. He actually asked <laughs> the court, uh, he filed a motion saying, hey, since I was only uh, charged $5 million in the first trial, I want to cap the damages in this trial at $5 million. And Judge Kaplan said, no, sir. That's <laughs> not how any of this works. <laughs> So um, he, he's filed a lot of motions to try to get to weasel his way out of this and he keeps losing them. Uh, but yeah, it is to gum up the works and, and to, to raise money. So that's what's going on with EG. And of course, we're going to cover this trial um, as it happens, should take a couple of weeks in, and it starts in a couple of weeks. So I'm looking forward to that. Add it to the pile. The trial pile is what we're going to call it um, in 2024. All right, everybody, we have to take another quick break. Stick around. We'll be right back. 
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We have more patrons to thank. We have We Can Feed Everybody. Yes, yes, we can. Ellen, Swanee, Sue Friedland. How much Chuck would a woodchuck fuck if a woodchuck could fuck Chuck Schumer? Okay. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that riddle. Uh, Tom Tormey, Lisa McAllister, Joe P. D. and Monica Morgan. Thank you very, very much for your support. You make the show possible. And I love your weird names. Keep sending them in. Um, now, this is a story we haven't talked about in a while because it's been a slow going investigation. But you'll remember Project Veritas uh, leader James O'Keefe was had a search warrant executed. There were several search warrants executed. And uh, it, it's kind of been going through this very long and arduous process that we have seen in several other cases like Michael Cohen and Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump, where you have to have a filter team, decide what's privileged and what can be handed over to investigators. So we have an update. District Judge Annalisa Torres in the Southern District of New York has ordered everything that the special master said should go over to investigators, over to investigators. Um, Project Veritas is being investigated for potentially stealing Ashley Biden's diary, among other things, and conspiring to do that and moving it across state lines. The government alleges that petitioners played a role in a conspiracy involving the theft and interstate transportation of certain property stolen from an individual who was an immediate family member of a then former government official who was a candidate for national political office. I love, I love the, the ambiguity mm, there. Who, yeah, who could it be? <laughs> stole Ashley Biden's Is diary. it Tiffany? Is it Tiffany's diary? Is it Eric's? Is it Don Jr.'s? Now, in November 2021, the Honorable Sarah L. Cave issued three search warrants for electronic devices in the residences of James O'Keefe, Spencer Meads, and Eric Cochran, all members of Project Veritas, a, quote, undercover investigative journalism organization. I love that she puts this in mm. quotes. Judge Cave found probable cause that the devices contained evidence of federal crimes. That's how you get a search warrant. There has to be probable cause of evidence of crimes. The Federal Bureau of Investigation executed the warrants and seized, Pete, 47 devices. Mm. Project Veritas, O'Keefe, Meads, and Cochran, collectively the petitioners, initiated this action to stop the government from reviewing the devices, arguing they contain vast amounts of information protected by the First Amendment. 
and the attorney-client privilege. On December 8th, 2021, the next month, the court appointed a special master. And guess who? It's the only special master I've ever heard of, and she is on every single one of these cases. It's Barbara Jones, retired judge, as the special master. She was the special master in Trump. She was a special master. She's the she's the uh, babysitter for the Trump org in the civil fraud trial. Uh, she's Cohen, Michael Cohen. She was the special master. She was the special master for Rudy Giuliani's devices being seized. So she's everywhere. Very busy uh, woman. Uh, and she issued a report and a recommendation. The report recommended all documents responsive to the search warrants and not protected by attorney-client privilege should be disclosed to the government's investigative team. Project Veritas objected. Uh, Tom Fitton came in his shirt that didn't fit mm. and said, that's not fair. And now mm. the court has overruled that objection and adopts the special master's recommendations. So this is a big deal. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, <laughs> Project Veritas contends that what they said in their motion is like, look, as journalists, which I, <laughs> you know, editorializing on the side, it is a stretch to call them that. They are not required to turn over the responsive materials to the government. The special master, you know, as you indicated, rejected uh, the argument after sorting each document into one of eight groups. The special master held that the privilege afforded to reporters does not apply to four groups of documents and that the government demonstrated a need sufficient to overcome the privileges as to the other four. Now, there were 10 documents determined to fall under the crime fraud exception, but most no. of that information is, yeah, I, I wonder what that, <laughs> that could be. And so uh, most of that information, though, was redacted. Now, the court therefore orders that by January 5th, right, you know, oh. as we're listening to this, Today. The government's filter team shall turn over the responsive materials, which are not protected by the attorney-client privilege, to the government's investigation team. And I would like, look, you know, the backdrop of this, not only is it taking a long time, but like Patrick Veritas is is essentially defunct. I mean, uh, oh, yeah. O'Keefe is out, right? In September of last year, they suspended all of their operations after they laid off most of their employees. And then the... the uh, after O'Keefe left, I think in June of last year, a woman by the name of Hannah Giles was appointed CEO, resigned last month and stating, writing upon resigning, quote, I stepped into an unsalvageable mess, one wrought with strong evidence of past illegality and past financial improprieties. And additionally, she wrote, once such evidence was discovered, I brought the information to the appropriate law enforcement agencies. So it's already bad. And I mean, it couldn't happen to a a, a nicer guy than James O'Keefe. Uh, I am I am hopeful that this evidence that is now has been determined should be turned over to the investigators, coupled with whatever <laughs> illegal activity that Hannah Giles or Giles has apparently uncovered during her tenure as CEO uh, will continue to place the criminal investigative focus on James O'Keefe. And so, again, the year of the trial, the year of the trial. We'll see what's coming down the pike there. Yeah. And I, I you know, I think I said uh, Fitton was, was part of this, but I think he's judicial watch. I have a hard time keeping my uh, right wing, quote, investigative journalism organizations uh, straight in my head. So <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, but I hope all these guys get indicted. Conspiracy is no joke. Um, and these these guys seem to all be under investigation for that. But Pete, these things can take a long time because sometimes it takes months to even get into the device, right? Like you got to crack the device. I've heard this. I know Marcy Wheeler talks about this a lot. Um, and, and these are the kinds of things that can really slow down an investigation. But once they get the material, once they get access, and once it's all handed over, like under the crime fraud exception or from a special master, I think that's when the investigation like really hits the ground running and, and wraps up fairly quickly. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I mean, look, there's there's it's a multi-phase uh, process, right? You have to get enough investigation to get probable cause to get a search warrant. Once you searched, as you indicated, you know, 40 whatever odd devices was there, then you have to go forensically process them, right? If they're encrypted, that entails additional work to decrypt. Hopefully you're able to decrypt the information. And then in this case, because there were, you know, ostensibly journalists, it has to go in front of a filter team. And that can involve litigation where both parties are saying, well, something should be excluded because it's, you know, First Amendment protected activity, or maybe you have communications with lawyers and different sides to litigate all that. And then finally, 
where we have the resolution like we do here, yes, things accelerate, but it doesn't mean this is the final step. I mean, as an investigator, no. you may finally get your dump from the filter team and you look and you say, oh my gosh, we didn't know that. I mean, there's this- It causes there's this more account. investigation. Yeah. There's this, right, the bank account they were using to pay the people who stole the diary or gosh, there was yeah. you know this other Brad, person involved who's that Brad? we didn't know about. Yeah. Right. And so go open a case on Brad, you know, and can we interview? And so there's- it will undoubtedly generate additional investigation. But I, you know, there's nothing like as an investigator, when you get a dump like this, particularly for that many devices, 47 I mean, that's a lot of data. That's a lot of data. And particularly if they were using any sort of chat, if there are any sort of like communications back and forth within the team, you know, financial records, time table wise your ability to sit and say okay what did somebody know and when did they know it when were they aware of this offer when did they tell somebody to do something i mean all this data uh is potentially in there so it's uh you know going to be extort i assume more likely than not very very helpful to investigators and uh not a great day for for james o'keefe and and a bunch of other knuckleheads yeah. And meanwhile, you know, they can get uh, they can use that whatever that rule is that you don't have to tell the person that you're getting stuff like like Trump's Twitter account information. Right. Which we've recently learned about in the Jack Smith investigation. All that stuff um, can go over. But, it, you know, sometimes it takes months just to unlock the phone, just to crack the phone to even get into it. But we're past that stage now. So all this stuff will be handed over and we'll keep an eye on it for you. We have uh, one more story left, but we have to take another quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. Our last group of new patrons to thank. We have Nuisance Factor, Slightly Askew Since 1982, Austin, <laughs> Deb, Cynthia Robbins Roth, Mary Davis, Lynn, Registered Nurse, We Can't Fix Stupid, But We Can Medicate It, MSAF, <laughs> And mean B. All right, our final story today is from NBC. It takes us to Washington, D.C., where the Republican led House Oversight and Judiciary Committees on Wednesday are seeking any communications between the White House and lawyers for Hunter Biden about efforts to depose the president's son 
as part of their impeachment inquiry. Remember, they can't manage they can't manage to pass any bills, but by God, they've got an impeachment inquiry underway. So let's let's forget about and they want all communications. They they basically they want they want an email where Joe Biden tells his son not to show up to Congress, exactly, even though he showed up that day. Right there, ceasing the Ukrainian and Chinese uh, masters and overlords uh, to let them in and saying, we are carrying out your orders as directed. And They want what they actually found in Bannon and Navarro's case, where their lawyers, Costello or the president, told them specifically not to show up. Um, They're looking for that, but with Hunter Biden, who actually showed up. So it's funny. Yeah, but if if you are House Oversight Committee Chair James Comer, Comer Pyle... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Republican from Kentucky and Judiciary Committee Chair James Jim Jordan, Republican Ohio, they made that request in a letter to Edward Siskel, assistant to the president and White House counsel, which was obtained by NBC News. The GOP chairman said they're seeking to determine whether the president was involved in his son's decision not to comply with a congressional subpoena. I can almost, I have this little voice in my head every time I see that. It's James Comer. We're going to get to the bottom of it. It's, it's, it's like this endless loop of him with Maria Bartiromo. And all, <laughs> all the children are laughing at him. And Judge you know, Jeanine Pirro, <laughs> and the only thing she's getting to the bottom of is a box of wine. Um, yeah. <laughs> but my, I, you know, I, I would love it so much if there was an email from Joe Biden that says, you should comply with the subpoena, son. You know, <laughs> that, would, easy, that would make yes, my year. Def- defying the presidency. But I look, it's it's all, the GOP chairman are saying, look, they're seeking to determine whether the president was involved in this decision. And as a result, the letter asked for all documents and communications sent or received by employees of the executive office of the president regarding the deposition of Hunter Biden, as well as any records, quote, sent or received by employees of the executive office of the president regarding President Biden's statement about his family's business associates on December 6, 2023. Yeah, but uh, but guess what, Pete? The Republican lawmakers indicated they're not aware whether any such communications exist. Of course they're not. Of course they're not. <laughs> Quote, in light of an official statement from the White House that President Biden was aware in advance that his son, Hunter Biden, would knowingly defy two congressional subpoenas, we are compelled to examine as part of our impeachment inquiry whether the president engaged in a conspiracy to obstruct a proceeding of Congress. That's from Jim Comer and Jim Jordan. And I tell you what, if I'm the White House, I I know, first of all, I know that there was no anyone in the White House or the executive branch telling Hunter Biden not to show up. Uh, and if there are any emails about Hunter Biden, which I doubt there are, but if there are, hand them over. Uh, of course, Comer will not release them. He'll keep them to himself because they exonerate the president and his son. But they go on to say the fact that the president has advanced awareness that Mr. Biden would defy the committee's subpoenas raises a troubling new question that we must examine, whether the president corruptly sought to influence or obstruct the committee's proceeding by preventing, discouraging or dissuading his son from complying with the committee's subpoenas. Such conduct could constitute an impeachable offense. And here, sure, if President Biden reached out to his kid and said, Fuck them. Don't show up to your subpoena. Don't show up. Just don't. Just ignore it altogether or whatever. Yeah, I would want to know that. I would. Yeah. And it, it's um, just. But that didn't happen. <laughs> it just didn't happen. No. No. And it's one of these like, look, it's not. It, it, it is at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with the people in any of this. It has to do with the behavior. So guess what? If. President Obama engaged in the same illegal, alleged illegal activity that Donald Trump did, he should be investigated and charged. If Joe Biden or George W. Bush or Ronald Reagan engaged in the same behavior that Donald Trump is alleged to have engaged in, they should be investigated and indicted. It's not about the person. It's about the behavior. So yes, if it's there, turn it over. If, you know, if you want to charge Hunter Biden, on these tax things, well, that's fine. Then let's also look at what Roger Stone did or didn't do. Let's also look at what Rudy. Paul Manafort or Rudy or anybody else did or didn't do. Let's have one standard and apply the facts to the law and use that same standard. And it isn't, oh, you're then if you do it to Trump, they can do it to Obama. Yes, that's 100% yeah, right. Please. 
Please and do. And if a Barack Obama results in the disappearance of a 10-inch binder full of highly classified material and has a bunch of highly classified information at his country club residence that everybody is running around and lies about it and doesn't turn things over in response to a subpoena, yeah, he should be investigated and charged as well. Santos, George Santos, yes. Menendez, Blagojevich, like, yes, charge them. I don't care if they're Dems. If they're committing crimes, then charge them with crimes. But House Republicans last week released records showing President Biden exchanged emails with his son's business associate 54 times while he was the vice president. Now, with some of some of these messages sent around the time that he was traveling to Ukraine while his son was working for Burisma. Now, those records do not include the content of the emails. So, yeah, it's just, oh. Of course they do, because if it had the content, that's the first flag, is that any time you see, like, <laughs> oh, we had a we had a closed interview and we're not releasing the transcript, or here's a record of the dates of the of the interviews, and hey, it's mighty suspicious he was traveling to Ukraine. Okay, let's see what it says. Oh, well, we're not going to release that. Wh- so, why? yeah, we don't know that these communications exist. And we're we're not going to show you you the content of the emails that we're mad about. Uh, And we're not going to give you the transcripts of any of the people that we've interviewed. We're only going to tell you what, you know, what we feel like they said. (laughs) It's it's such a shit show. It it is. And it doesn't stop. And I swear, I don't know how this provides any continuing interest because it's not like when when when, when Trey Gowdy was running the whole Benghazi thing against Hillary Clinton, that had some like you know again it was a tragedy. You could make an un, in my opinion very unfair assertion that you know under her leadership the State Department failed to provide adequate security given warnings. But I, whether or not that was fair or not, there was at least some foothold of a question. There's nothing here. There's right. no. They, they have no idea that anything exists. So, I, you know, I think they are trying but to recreate. Pete, the man has money and sometimes he spends his money and sometimes he gets money. You understand? You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope we keep digging into, uh, you know, Jim Comer's real estate empire yes. back home in Kentucky and his the LLC. Farm swaps, and the six the, the acres. profit he made. Yeah. The 20 odd thousand that he made off of that deal and what's going on and why they need an LLC. Let's let's dig into that because, you know. Impeach Chad the, Comer. The, the, the angriest that I've seen James Comer was but when yeah. he was getting called out about those dealings and about uh, members of the Moskowitz. media sort of going, yeah, and calling Moskowitz a little smurf. And I mean, he was really angry and uh, the media poking around back home. Good, good. Keep poking because that, yeah, you know, got that is truly the mad. angriest I've seen, he, you know, for as dopey as he is, he doesn't seem particularly <laughs> a, a flappable or, you know, emotional sort of guy. And he was getting pretty fired up about that. So it tells me it's, you know, there's it reminded there me of when the- Ted Cruz was mad about the fact that the FBI could probably intercept his communications if they were with foreign people. Hmm. Hmm. Imagine that. And he was like, hmm. well, are you going to tell me whether or not? You have my communications with some, you know, foreign diplomats or whatever. Are you? Do you have them? Do you? Are you listening? Are you listening to what I'm talking to these folks about? And you know, are you going to unmask me? It's like, look, if you are talking to Kislyak and committing crimes, yeah, we're listening, and we don't know who you are until we ask the, the uh, FISA court or whoever to unmask you, so that we can find out who's committing crimes with with foreign actors. Um, and, and yeah, and uh, Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham also was really nervous about, about all that. And it kind of cracked me up. Um, yeah, we'll see what ends up happening here, but the, the voters are tired of it. Uh, we're going <laughs> to, what's going to happen is, gonna... is nothing. Nothing is what's going to yeah. happen. There is, there is nothing there. Nothing is going to happen. I don't even think they'll to impeach. Uh, no, I mean, they've, they've got to come up with what we're, we're January, right? So we got to get something essentially for uh, 11 months to get us to the beginning of November. And so they're going to just have, you know, nonsense and, you know, subpoena witnesses for testimony and documents and have, you know, show scam, sham uh, uh, hearings to talk about nonsense uh, through through the election. That's, that's I think subpoenas have to go in order. So no one can come in and testify until Jim Jordan does. I think that I think that they have they should go in order. 
<laughs> you have to yeah, you have to clear the... the previous subpoena before you can move on to the next one. Yeah, which is of course never never going to happen. No. Uh, <sighs> well, happy new year, my friend. Um, it's going to be year. a heck of a January. We've got uh, January eleventh uh, closing arguments in the two hundred and fifty million dollar civil fraud trial, uh, and. Uh, We'll look. We'll look forward to what happens there. I. I don't. It's Judge Angoron. There will be appeals. We'll see what ends up uh, going down. But uh, then we have Eugene on January sixteenth, and then next month we've got this pyramid scheme, this apprentice pyramid scheme, Trump family uh, fraud trial that'll be happening as well. So we are we are not going to be without trials. I think in probably every month going forward, March might be blank. Um, I. I. I think that we'll get the. The DC coup trial, probably not in March and probably won't be delayed enough to let Alvin Bragg go in March, but we'll see what, what ends up happening. And of course, May is not when the documents case is going to occur. Uh, and Fonnie Willis could move up in the rent. It's, there's so much, <laughs> there's so much. Yeah, in the States, right, right. And what happens, what happens in additionally Nevada, new, in Michigan, Michigan in Wisconsin, Wisconsin, Nevada, Arizona, Arizona yes. Uh, and they're they are active, and I will all of those states bring charges against people. Doubt it. Will some of them? Almost certainly. So, yeah, there's a there's a lot going on. And for Trump, I mean, it is and always has been about the money and the ego. But these things coming yep. up between the the businesses, between the defamation damages, it hits him in one of the areas that he actually cares about. And so expect just exquisite temper tantrums in speeches, in tweets, bleats on Truth Social, whatever they are. Um, yeah. I'm, well, to me, I'm the, the most coming. consequential trial for history is the D.C. coup trial. For Donald Trump, the most consequential thing will be losing his businesses, losing his business license, disgorgement, fines, uh, and, and, no law, and the Trump organization being dissolved. That, I think, is going to be the worst thing to him, um, worse than going to jail or, you know, being in a safe house on a military base serving time for the last 10 miserable years of his life. I think the worst thing that can happen to a Trump is that you take their businesses away and, uh, and expose them for the frauds that they are. Um, all right. That's the show, everybody. We will be back next week. And then if you're a patron, of course, we will have our bonus coming up this weekend. And um, we also, uh, oh, I, I need to figure out what date we're going to send out the RSVPs for the April 20th DC meetup so that everyone knows when to expect those in their inboxes. So I will come up with that date, probably let you know when it is next week. Um, not, not that the RSVPs are going to go out next week, but I'll tell you the date the RSVPs, the RSVPs are going to go out next week. Do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here today, Pete, in this new new year? No, yeah, it sounds great. Um, looking forward to the new year. I think we're going to see it goes without saying a lot of both expected and unexpected things happening. And certainly in the context of coming from an investigative background, knowing the level of information, the investigators, and that's everybody. It's whether it's Jack Smith's investigators, whether it's Fonnie Willis, it's been all the states that we talked about, the level of the information that they have right now that is not known because nobody's given it to the press. It hasn't been turned over in discovery yet. There is a huge amount of data and information out there that we don't know yet. And that is one of the things that is going to come out this year that you know, we can't predict what it is. Uh, it's going to be surprising when it happens and look forward to talking about it as it occurs in the months ahead. Yeah, everybody, we'll see you next week. Talk about more stuff. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. 
I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.